0: Hello oh, and welcome back to the Agents of Change, in environmental justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. I have a new pup on my lap this week. We brought her home from the shelter. Her name is Rio. So if I sound a little extra chipper today, it's because I have a beautiful new Lab Beagle mix, and I'm so excited that she joined our house. I hope you have all checked out our most recent essay from Tatiana tot's height on the role of electric vehicles in pushing for environmental justice. I just love this essay, and hearing about her electric vehicle journey made me think a little differently about my old Ford truck out front. I do, though I do love that truck have to say. Gas guzzler, but I love that. Anyway, our team is hard at work on new podcasts that will feature the fellows themselves taking things over from me. They will talk to their mentors. They'll discuss what it means to be a person of color navigating academia and tackle other issues. I can't wait to bring you these new podcasts in the coming months, so please stay tuned. Today's guest hanging out with me is Dr. Daniel Carrion a postdoctoral fellow at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and a current Agents of Change fellow. And he will shortly be beginning a position as an assistant professor of environmental health sciences at the Yale School of Public Health. Yale, you might have heard of that one. So proud of Daniel. Very, very cool. Kerrien discusses the imprint that New York City and Puerto Rico had on him growing up, energy poverty in rural Ghana, and the intersection of air pollution, extreme temperatures, and Term birds. Enjoy. All right. I am really excited to be joined by Daniel Carrion. Daniel, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. And where are you at?
1: I am in Harlem in New York City.
0: Awesome. You know, I always talk to people about where they're at, then we devolve into talking about the weather. <laughs> So I'm going to change and not ask about the weather. I don't even know if you're a coffee drinker, but if you are, what is your favorite coffee shop around there?
1: Ooh, coffee shop around here. I guess it would be um, Double Dutch. There's a coffee shop down on Frederick Douglass, and they make a really good dirty chai, which is way too expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. It's called Double
0: Dutch? Is that what it
1: was? Yeah, Double Dutch.
0: Awesome. Next time I'm there, I'm going to check that out. And speaking of New York City, that's a good place to start because uh, as a child, you were you were born there. You you moved from the Bronx eventually to Westchester. And and you've also spent some time in summer with extended family in Puerto Rico. And you said that the move from the Bronx to Westchester and these trips to Puerto Rico kind of opened your eyes to inequality and environmental health disparities. I'm wondering if you could tell us about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, so when I was young, uh grew up in the Bronx. My mom is from the Bronx, my dad is from Brooklyn. Uh and you know, that was you know, very young ages. Uh all I knew, we would take sometimes trips up to uh Westchester and um I thought that that was the countryside. Um and then soon found out uh we were moving to Westchester um when I was about 11 and you know the the bronx where i lived pelham parkway is the name of the neighborhood it's a really nice area of the bronx um but it's called pelham parkway because there's a parkway that uh, traverses uh, kind of an east-west artery of the bronx and so it's one of the main ways of getting east uh, and west in the bronx and It was a very loud place growing up. We were right next to Jacoby Medical Center, which is a trauma one medical center. Um, And so, you know, I just always heard sirens growing up, Um, you know, middle of the night, middle of the day, whatever it was. Um, But then, you know, I was always surrounded also by traffic. I'd never realized how much traffic there was all the time where I was in the Bronx Um, and Pelham Parkway was, uh, is really beautiful insofar as, you know, there's, uh, kind of a green lawn that separates the parkway. That was kind of my, uh, my lawn growing up. (laughs) That was my yard growing up, uh, until we went to Westchester. Um, and kind of, as you mentioned, I saw kind of how different, uh, different people's realities are, um. And so in Westchester, you know, I was suddenly having play dates with kids who had in ground pools or nannies or, um, or entire rooms full of their toys. Um, and that just like, wasn't a reality that I had ever thought of. Suddenly it was dark at night and it was quiet at night. Um, uh, which was actually very disquieting to me. <laughs> I could not sleep well when we first moved there. Um, and then, you know, throwing in there that, you know, I'm New Yorkian, which means I'm a New York-based, uh, New York-raised Puerto Rican. Um, and so we would spend lots of holidays and um, summers with family in Puerto Rico. Uh, my parents couldn't afford summer camp, so it was easier to just, send me for a summer to, uh, spend the summer with my abuelita in Puerto Rico. And that was amazing and wonderful. I, um, love Puerto Rico. Um, uh, but at the same time, Puerto Rico also has, you know, its own challenges. Uh, if Puerto Rico were a state, which it's not, but if it were a state, it would be by far, the poorest state in the nation, you know, half the per capita income of Mississippi, uh, the poorest state in the nation. Um, And so, you know, that's visible. Uh, Poverty is visible in Puerto Rico. Um, And at the same time, it's a wonderfully beautiful place and with beautiful people who somehow make things work and make things happen. Um, so I feel like traversing all of those different geographies kind of made me start thinking about this this inequality that we see on geography all the time. I think it's funny that quiet was disquieting to you. That was the <laughs> that
0: was the word you used. I know. As I
1: was saying it, I was like, "Yeah, that sounds weird."
0: <laughs> no, there's something to that. I I when I travel uh, and 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 stay in a larger city, which I used to live in larger cities the noise is the first thing that always strikes me it it's I, I don't know how people um the construction and the traffic and but if that's what you're used to right there there is something to be said for that and um so i i, I want to probe this a little further so uh at, you know at that age you know you were talked about 11 when you moved when did you kind of work the environment into this so it sounds like maybe inequality and kind of people's different realities and social social structure was kind of uh creeping into your mind a little bit but when did kind of environmental health and the environment come into play
1: Yeah, it probably wasn't until college uh honestly. So I had friends in high school who liked to go for hikes and you know do outdoorsy things um which was again all new to me. I didn't do that. Um I didn't even know how to swim when we left the Bronx. And so there were multiple things about the natural environment that were like odd to me. Um, and then I went to, uh, Ithaca college for undergrad and was, uh, literally just taking gen ed classes. I didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, for a major. And I took an environmental science class and there was just like one little snippet at the very end of the environmental science class, um, about environmental racism and environmental inequality, um, and so that kind of like piqued my interest. I was like, what is that? What are we talking about here? Um, and so somehow that 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 little snippet strung me along for an entire major. Uh, and it wasn't until, I felt like I was doing lots of different things, but they didn't uh, necessarily all make sense together, right? I had a minor in economics and another minor in sociology, and I was an environmental studies major. Um, And I was thinking a lot about inequality and I was thinking a lot about the environment, but I wasn't finding ways to like pull them all together uh, until my very last semester, I took an environmental health and medicine class. Um, And that was when the light bulb went off. And I said, this is how it all ties together. This is how I can integrate all of these things, Um, thinking about the environment, health and inequality.
0: So before we talk about how you took that the next step into graduate school, I want to ask you what was a defining moment or event or anything like that that shaped your identity, personally, professionally.
1: Ooh. Um yeah, this is a tough one. It probably comes a little bit later in my trajectory, uh which is after college, after I did my master's of public health, um I got a job at Columbia running a summer pipeline program called the summer public health scholars program. Um, and it was a brand new program for Columbia university funded by the CDC. And, um, so I got to kind of like make this program from scratch. Like it was just a grant document and they said, they handed me that grant document and they said, make this happen. (laughs) Um, And so the idea of the program was to bring 50 um, historically minoritized students from around the country to Columbia uh, to learn about health equity for a summer. Uh, And that was super exciting on multiple levels. One was that I was learning more about health equity by doing that. Uh, Two was I was learning more about the beautiful diversity that is uh, in this country. Um, The students were amazing and taught me so much. Um, And three, I had the best bosses. Um, uh, I don't, I don't feel like people get to say that enough, but I reported to four associate deans of diversity uh, of the four schools of the medical center. And they were, you know, not only powerhouses, but they were so incredibly uh, caring about me and my career. Uh, and so before this, I hadn't been thinking about a PhD, but uh, at some point they literally sat me down. It was kind of like a, a funny intervention. And they said, we've all talked and we've decided that you need to do a PhD. <laughs> um, uh and, you know, I took it really seriously. And and clearly that's the, the journey I went on. Um, so on multiple levels, it just kind of pulled together lots of pieces of me. And I feel like pushed me uh, to the next phase of my life and career.
0: That's really cool. It, it's always fun to be part of something, too, where you see youth get excited about something that they probably wouldn't or get interested into something they probably wouldn't. I I know teachers probably have this feeling all the time, but even if it's something as simple as, uh, you know, I take my nephews and nieces on on hikes and having them see a a bear or something in the wild or or a deer and having that spark lit, uh, let alone having them come to Columbia and learn about something kind of big and broad as health equity, I would imagine that's got to be a pretty fulfilling feeling
1: yeah i I would echo that. my boyfriend is a teacher, and so uh, I get to learn a lot about pedagogy and teaching from him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one thing that I had always thought was kind of a cheesy thing that people would say was um, about how much uh, teachers can learn from students. Uh, and that was when it actually happened for me, uh, when I was running that program, I was like, oh my God, I'm learning so much from these kids.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that's very cool. I feel that as a, as an editor, it's not a teacher student relationship, but kind of overseeing content and writing and learning so much from the writers, including, including you and, and the people from agents of change learning so much from them. Um, I feel very privileged in that kind of that same regard. So tell me where energy poverty kind of came into your work. So you're you've talked about this kind of social inequality and learning about the environment a little bit, but this this track of research that you followed kind of really the thread is energy poverty. Can you kind of explain what that is and, and where your work uh, has involved that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I feel like uh, I started thinking about energy poverty because so much of my thinking as an environmental studies major, was about climate change. Um, And so uh, energy is really one of the biggest tensions that we run in thinking about climate and health, right? Because um, energy is, our choices historically in energy are driving our climate crisis. And yet at the same time, we know that energy is fundamental to human health. Uh, and so when I went into grad school, I wasn't originally thinking that I was going to work on energy poverty per se, but I was thinking that I was going to work on energy and security, which we'll probably come back to later. Um, and thinking about, uh, exposures to extreme heat during the summer. Uh, but then actually my, uh, advisor ended up leaving Columbia Uh, And there was another faculty member who was doing work on energy poverty in Ghana. And so I ended up working with him. He approached me and said, hey, would you like to work with me on my research agenda? Um, Which was wonderful. Uh, And uh, I ended up learning a lot about a topic I hadn't known much about. So with that as preamble. um, So energy poverty uh, kind of simply is the idea uh, that folks uh use solid fuels um for their cooking or heating or other energy needs um so solid fuels in this context is like wood or dung or charcoal or in some uh small cases actually coal itself um and so they use those types of fuel to uh cook for their for their families or themselves and Uh, potentially to warm their home, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, And we're, you know, concerned about it on multiple levels. But from a health perspective, uh, when folks burn those types of fuel, it makes a lot of air pollution. Uh, And so people are exposed to really, really high levels of air pollution uh, as a consequence of burning these types of fuel so you
0: kind of backed into this research in rural Ghana it sounds like through an advisor um looking at solid fuel use for energy and household air pollution first set the scene for me a little bit i've never been there tell me a little bit did you get to go to Ghana and if so what was rural Ghana like
1: yeah i was really fortunate to have gone to Ghana about 6 or 7 times during my doctoral program and we would spend or i would spend about 2 weeks at a time uh Cause it's, it's a journey to get there. (laughs) Um, So, you know, to get there, you uh, usually take two flights um, to get to Accra, which is the capital of Ghana. Uh, It's on the Southern coast of West Africa. And uh, from Accra, then we would take a regional flight to Kumasi, which is the, the, another city in the middle of the country. And then from Kumasi uh, would drive, I think, three and a half, four hours to get to uh, the area that we worked in, which was Kintampo. Ghana is a really beautiful country. And, um, you know, along that kind of geography from the coast to the um, middle of the country, uh, it gets pretty dry. And so in the middle of Ghana and Kintampo, uh, and in Ghana in general, there are two major seasons. There's the wet season and the dry season. Uh, so it's really, really dry and hot, um, for, you know, about half the year. And then the other half the year, it's warm to hot and wet. (laughs) Um, it's, um, you know, it's, Cantampo uh, is a place where there's a small, uh, kind of small city uh, or township in the very middle, and then very quickly becomes rural from there. And so the guest house that I would stay at, you know, you would walk along uh, a paved road for a little while, and then you would walk along a dirt road for a little while, uh, pass a bunch of goats along the way. Uh, and then get to the guest house. Um, So yeah, um, Ghana is, uh, there were lots of things that were really familiar about Ghana and a lot of things that were very different about Ghana, right? Uh, And so I think a lot of this, I think a lot about food. I feel like if I relived my academic experience, it would probably be in like, food ethnography or something like that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there were, there are lots of foods and staple items that are actually very similar between Ghana and Puerto Rico. You can, you can very much see the African diaspora uh, through a lot of the foods that people eat and the types of things that people do with their food. So um, for example, plantains and cassava um are two very big staples in ghana um and also in puerto rico (laughs) and so it was kind of funny uh one of the first times i was there someone said to me this is a plantain this is cassava i was like (laughs) yeah yeah i'm familiar (laughs) Um, um and uh yeah it was it was kind of funny in that way and also other little things like um they eat a lot of soups and stews in Ghana um, and which is also the case in Puerto Rico. And, you know, it it kind of gave me flashbacks to when I would go visit my family in the middle of summer, it was so hot in Puerto Rico and they were eating a big bowl of soup. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself as a kid, like, are you people crazy? (laughs) Like it's so hot. Um, And then, you know, traverse you know many thousands of miles to another part of the world and this is kind of a shared a shared uh food journey that people do so i thought that that was kind of funny and interesting
0: yeah very cool and tell me about some of the research you did while you were there so you were looking at exposure to some of this indoor air pollution from from burning solid fuels and possible interventions. So I'm assuming that's that's ways to try to get people to not have these exposures. So what did you find and what did you do down there?
1: Yeah, so um, this has been a research agenda for um, a lot of folks in uh, the social sciences for a long time. Uh, and then folks in public health started thinking about these issues as well. And um Essentially, what we did was we were thinking about some of the interventions that actually the Ghanaian government uh, was already doing in Ghana. So they have a program uh, called the Rural LPG Program, where they are going to um, uh, communities, rural communities around the country, and they're freely distributing brand new stoves, gas burning stoves. Uh, And the idea there is to try and transition people off of solid fuels and onto uh, these other gas stoves that produce less air pollution. And basically what we did was we did an evaluation of that program and we found that um, if you just hand people a brand new stove, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to use that stove, right? Right. Uh, it costs money to refill their gas tanks. And so you've kind of gotten rid of that upfront cost of the stove itself, but there's this repeating cost of the actual gas. And so uh, one of my research studies was actually seeing, okay, they already have this intervention in place. Can we modify the intervention a little bit uh, so that it's more effective? And it won't cost that much more for the government to implement. And so we tried a couple of different strategies to increase uh, people's uptake of these stoves over time. So we did a direct delivery service. So rather than having to walk 40 kilometers or to get a ride 40 kilometers to refill their fuel, we set up a system where they got a direct delivery. Uh, And... Unfortunately, it didn't work <laughs> because even though we had made it a lot easier on multiple levels, uh, it didn't necessarily change the material conditions of the actual fuel costing money. Uh, and, you know, the, the wood for their burning for their stoves, um, aside from their time, which is a big cost, but aside from their time, uh, was free. And so that's a big hurdle for, for initiatives like this and research like this.
0: So this idea that energy use is harming certain groups and maybe not harming others as much is, is obviously not unique to Ghana. And, it, and it's also here in the US. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your work on energy insecurity in the US and how current research and models may be missing these disparities among different groups.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um I had mentioned uh Uh, This idea of energy and security before. And this was uh, coined by one of my friends and mentors, Diana Hernandez, uh, who has written about this idea of energy and security. And so energy and security, I think, is intuitive to a lot of people. You've um, probably heard about this idea of um, the heat or eat dilemma. Right A lot of folks during the winter when it was uh, when it has been historically really cold um trying to decide do I keep my heat turned up and keep my family warm uh or do I serve a nutritious meal right It's kind of a product of overall poverty, but then it's kind of how people navigate their circumstances of poverty um and so. I thought that this was a really important paradigm to think about, but thinking about it from another perspective, thinking from my climate standpoint of climate change means that we are experiencing more heat waves. Uh, It means that uh, people are dying from those heat waves and having a lot of other um, extreme health outcomes. And so Um, I've kind of coined this idea of heat stroke or go broke dilemma, uh, where people are trying potentially to navigate, do I keep my home cool during the summer? um, Or do I kind of deal with that heat um, and potentially have the adverse health outcomes that come along with that? Uh, And so that's kind of the, this energy and security paradigm that I've been thinking about Uh, with regard to climate now.
0: And what are some ways, some solutions, uh, that term is so squishy, but I'm going to use it anyway, just paths forward when we think about energy insecurity in the U.S. There's a lot of people, including yourself, thinking about this. Are there examples of places that are addressing this, or where can we look for some optimism on this front?
1: Yeah, so I think that there, as you mentioned, uh, really amazing people doing work on this. Um, There are folks who are thinking about uh, trying to have a more just transition uh, to clean energies uh, for folks who experience energy insecurity or energy burden. So folks like Tony Reams, for example, who think about um, how do we lower the prices or get more equitable Equitable distribution of, you know, CFL light bulbs or LEDs that are more energy efficient. Uh, the upfront cost for those are more expensive than a regular light bulb, but on the backside, you end up saving more money, and that seems to be a common thread here, right, with the stoves as well in Ghana, that we oftentimes run this tension of these upfront costs for things being super expensive, but then you can win back or get back some of that um, in the long term, but that assumes that people have that upfront. And so we need systems to help people with uh, some of these types of uh, upfront costs. Um, another area that people are thinking about this is with, you know, rooftop solar, for example, Uh, a lot of those programs have relied on like rebate programs where you get money back on your taxes at the end of the year. But that means that you have to be able to afford the solar in the first place to get it onto your roof, uh, to then save money or energy. Um, so, you know, there are folks who are thinking about these types of programs and more equitable distributions here. Uh, I would say another thing from my kind of climate perspective that um, folks at We Act for Environmental Justice, an environmental justice organization in New York City, have been thinking about trying to scale up the low income uh, home energy assistance program. Uh, This is a program that has historically existed in the United States to help people with their wintertime heating bills. uh, But we can use that same program to help people with their summertime cooling bills. Uh, But historically, it hasn't been used for that. And so I think we need to heed the the call of environmental justice activists and try and think about some of these policy instruments that already exist uh, to help poor families.
0: So I know in some of your current work, you've roped in perhaps the most vulnerable group, and that is kind of the unborn. So you're looking at the intersection of air pollution, extreme temperatures, and preterm births. Walk me through this this interaction of air pollution, extreme temperatures, and how it impacts the unborn.
1: Yeah, so there's still a lot of research ongoing in this field. And I think we have a lot of studies that um, tell us that uh, independently, air pollution and um, and extreme temperatures both um, are associated with preterm birth, but it's more recently that we're thinking about these together, right? These are both ambient environmental exposures um, that lots of folks are uh, exposed to, but we also know that there are big disparities in these exposures. So there's increasing research that shows Uh, that poor folks, people of color, historically redlined communities, uh, all experience higher summertime temperatures. And that's some of the work that I'm also doing right now. Uh, but then we also know that preterm birth is one of the most stark and persistent health disparities that we have in this country that um, Black women, for example, are 50% more likely to uh, experience a preterm birth. And so um, thinking about these two together, I think is really important, or perhaps these three together is really important. I think we're trying to figure out what's uh, actually going on in the biology that would uh, make this be the case. So for example, there's some evidence that air pollution uh, during uh, a fetus's gestation may uh, cause uh, different types of abnormalities. And then, you know, your body then uh, would uh, then lead to a preterm birth, for example. Uh, But that's all preliminary research and people are still trying to figure out what's the kind of underlying biology that would make this happen. I think another interesting case uh, here is that, you know, more recently, folks have actually found that um, air pollution actually makes it to the fetus. I think in the past, people thought that the placenta, the umbilical cord, was filtering some of that stuff out. And so, um, so you know, the fetus is probably okay. Uh, but more recent research has found that air pollution is actually making it Across the placenta, and so there are real potential biological mechanisms that would harm an uh, uh, a fetus during gestation.
0: Yeah, and all of this is so complex. I know when we write about chemical exposure for for women and children. Um, thinking about that there's also all these other exposures beyond air pollution. <laughs> so maybe it's food packaging exposure, and then you have this multiplier effect in the, the interaction. It's, it's also complex. And then layer on top of that, of course, maybe heat stress and other things you're looking at. So um, definitely com- some complex research and Daniel, just just take a step back. You are doing so many cool things. Did you ever think you'd be doing this for a living? All this kind <laughs> of different research and uh you just you just have a lot going on and it's so it's also fascinating to me. Do you ever think you'd be doing this for a living?
1: Yeah, that's a flat no. Um <laughs> uh, to be completely honest, um, I don't I don't share this all the time, but you know, why not on a, a national podcast? Um <laughs> uh when I was uh in high school going into undergrad, my like I thought that I was going to become a chorus teacher and a track coach. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then somehow all of this happened. Um, And so, so yeah, the short answer is no, I did not think that this was going to be my journey.
0: So the natural next question is, do you still sing and run?
1: (laughs) Um, I don't sing as much as I would like to anymore. Um, I do run a fair amount still, though.
0: Awesome! So you're here. Obviously, we are talking because of the Agents of Change program, and that is really geared towards science communication. And I'm just curious what your experience has been so far using SciComm to try to get your work out to to lay folks. And what role do you think science communication, kind of for the broader public, will play as you move forward in your career?
1: Yeah, I think science communication is really important, uh, especially in an age where people can get all types of information at their fingertips, uh, whether or not it's scientifically vetted. Uh, And so uh, it's really important for us to speak often and clearly uh, to folks about the work that we're doing. Um, And so I've had a little bit of experience here and there. So I did uh, a study not too long ago about uh, COVID related disparities and uh, ended up being on a documentary in Spain about some of that research. Uh, and then also getting interviewed on the radio here in New York. Uh, and it has been uh an amazing experience it's also terrifying uh, <laughs> we get no training uh in this aside from uh, initiatives like agents of change which is one of the reasons why i jumped at this opportunity because uh you know people talk about it here and there about being important but it's not part of a grad curriculum it's not part of uh the training oftentimes Uh, And sometimes faculty, uh, you know, will not necessarily even train their particular mentees in these things. So uh, science communication is super important. We need to be thinking about it more. And I'm glad that opportunities like this exist to to get our voices out there and let people know the work that we're doing.
0: On top of the lack of training, there's also just so many different aspects of you know, quote unquote, the media, you know, speaking for a documentary versus a podcast versus a television hit where maybe you have 30 seconds to get your point across uh, versus a print reporter who will probably spend some time and, and, and let you talk about your research quite a bit. They're all just so vastly different. And um, I, I do I do echo that there needs to be more training. And I'm glad we're doing that that work. And I want to pick up on something you said earlier before we wrap here. And that's when you you said the term heat stroke or go broke. And in terms of science communication, you know, those kind of quick lines, I feel like can do a lot of good in having people wrap their head around a concept that, as we walk through, it can can be very complex. How much thought goes into something like that, um, a a saying like that? Is that something that, or uh, uh, what is it, Dr. Hernandez's, um, the other other saying that I'm forgetting right now, just walk me through that process a little bit, because I think those kind of statements can be really important.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Um, uh, I think for me, I had heard of um, this idea of the heat or eat dilemma. And then I started thinking about the climate and, uh, and heat stress. And I was like, but nothing exists on the opposite side. So uh, that felt so intuitive to have that little quick phrase. And so I just kind of sat for you know an hour, and I was just like, "What would I call this? Like, what would the opposite side be?" Um, and so, yeah, I I think I thought about it for like an hour or two, and had several drafts of what that little term could be. Um, but I think the you know the proof will be is if it actually catches on.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it it's really like in my job writing a headline. It's the first thing people are going to see. It's something to grab folks, really, so you can draw them into all the context you want to provide. So I, I just think it's a really powerful tool and wanted to ask you about that. So Daniel, today has been such a wonderful time with you. You are one of those people that just kind of exudes positivity, I feel like, even though I've never met you. So I really appreciate you smiling and making me laugh here. And my last question is, what is the last book that you read for
1: fun? Um. So I mostly read nonfiction. Uh, and the last book that I read was, uh, palaces for the people by Eric Kleinenberg. Uh, it's a really cool book thinking about how, what we normally think about traditionally as infrastructure can also be social infrastructure. It could also act in ways that, uh, allow people to interact with each other and, um, and break down some of the barriers that we have in society. Um, so it was a very good book. I would recommend it.
0: Sounds very timely, given what Congress is thinking about right now on some of the <laughs> broadening the definition of infrastructure. So I definitely recommend people check that out. And Daniel, thank you again so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much, Ryan.
0: that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel. He has such a great aura about him and such an infectious laugh. really enjoyed hearing about his work, and I can't wait to see what he does as he joins Yale next year. If you enjoy this podcast, please be a part of it. Help us out. Visit agentsofchange.org, our fancy new website, and while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelis vanhorn Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Seo, and Aaron Gomez. Our team would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeNEJ at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, AgentsOfchangeInEJ.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Next week, we would usually have an essay from one of the fellows, but we are off. It is Thanksgiving week. I hope if you celebrate, you celebrate with style, and if you don't celebrate, you at least get some days off. I know I will be watching the Detroit Lions lose and drinking red wine. That's usually how I celebrate. I don't see why this week would be any different. The following week, we will be back, of course, on December 1st, and join me when I speak with Dr. Lariah Edwards, a current fellow and a postdoctoral scientist working jointly at the George Washington School of Public Health and the Environmental Defense Fund. Until then, have a great week, folks.